Iris just realized that in order to understand the films that you'd go see in the movie theater, you, you needed to have a prior knowledge of film. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. We get to see what we see because a film archive makes it possible for us to see. In this episode, I talk to Ann Mora, Associate Curator in the Department of Film at the Museum of Modern Art, who's running a series devoted to the museum's and America's original film curator, Iris Berry. And our annual Pordenone Silent Film Festival correspondent, Lockie Heiss, tells us what the archives presented in Italy this year. Help keep us a going concern and not just an archive of past episodes, even if there are a lot of really good ones if you haven't heard them yet. Subscribe at your favorite podcast site or app, and help us spread the word by leaving a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks. As a Chicagoan, I hesitate to give New York City too much credit, but it's impossible not to regard 53rd near 6th Avenue, otherwise known as the Museum of Modern Art, as being pretty much the birthplace of serious film culture in this country. That devotion to cinema as a modern art, as worthy of consideration as painting or photography, began with the Department of Film's founder, Iris Berry. The museum just reopened after a major renovation, and to mark the occasion, the Department of Film is looking at its own history and Iris Berry's legacy, with films she shared and taught. I started my conversation with Ann Mora, Associate Curator in the Department of Film, by asking her to tell us about the series of screenings she put together, Iris Berry's History of Film. For the reopening of the museum, we were charged as, or I should say challenged as curators to use collection materials only in the reopening programs. And one of the challenges, uh, again, to use only collection-based materials was to formulate um, a, a program that really dug into the film department collection. And here in the film department, we were interested in various histories and histories about the collection and histories about the department. So it seemed um, fairly logical to begin um, an investigation into Iris Berry herself, who was our founding curator, and um, how she put together the various programs that inaugurated the department in 1935 and into 1936, and um, what were her what were her goals and what were her themes and what was important to her and priorities in terms of building the collection. So, using all of those um, concepts, I also refer to her 1935 publication, Film Notes, as my guidepost. Um, in this uh, book, Film Notes, she writes small captions about various films that she showed over those, uh, over those in, uh, early years. So that was my jumping off point. And um, I was able to construct a, quite a wide-ranging program that opened on October 21st, the, the opening day here at MoMA, and will close on December 31st. And how many programs in all is it going to be? I believe it's 57, uh, 57 programs. There are also 
some shorts programs in there that have multiple short films. Um, but it's, like I said, it's quite wide ranging and um, it goes from the earliest films, basically the dawn of cinema to the most contemporary ones that she selected into the early 1930s. Well, let's talk about who Iris Berry was. I mean, I think it's a name that if you're in film history, you know, hovers out there because you read about things that she did at MoMA. But uh, quite a life story on multiple continents and various other things. So, Yes, well, Iris Berry was, uh, she was born in Britain. And she was very interested in film as an art form quite early on. She was one of the earliest members of the London Film Society and truly believed that film was an art form. And um, much in the way that people develop an eye to looking at painting and sculpture and photography, she felt that film also fell into those those considerations. She was friends with Alfred Barr, who was the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art. And Alfred Barr invited Iris to come to New York um, because he had been thinking about the inception of a film department uh, early as 1929 when the museum was founded because he strongly believed that works of art made in multiples and by machines, film and photography and books and things like that, um, were also equally uh, valuable in terms of art, much in the way that painting and sculpture was was always privileged. And um, so he invites her here to New York and they have many conversations about um, a possible film department. But of course, what happens? The depression gets in the way. <laughs> so um, economically, that wasn't going to happen. Um, but it was always on the plan for, for this, this institution. Come 1935, Iris resurfaces with Alfred Barr and they bring out their plans again, take them off the back burner. And um, the trustees challenge Iris, you know, do will people go and see films in um, a, a repertory manner? Um, or is our public really just interested in films that are made right now in a leisure time capacity? So they challenge her to put together a series of programs and she does this in early 1935 at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and those programs were enormously successful. So she comes back to New York and uh, says to the trustees at the time, including John Hay Whitney, who was, um, was a, a trustee here at MoMA, you know, yes, I do believe the audience is willing to take the leap of faith and begin to consider film as art form, as an art form. And I, I really think that we we have the capacity now to to build a collection and to formulate various film programs that can go out to schools and universities. Um, in the way there are art history classes, there can be film history classes. So the, um, the film department was incorporated in June of 1935. There was a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to, um, to begin building the collection. And uh, that's sort of how the, the foundation began with respect to the department. And Iris was um, at that time working quite, quite rigorously on building film programs and sending films out to universities and libraries and um, budding film societies, you know, to really look at film um, as, as an art form for the study of motion pictures in the United States. If you go on the MoMA website, you can see in the introduction to my series, the function of the film library was to trace, catalog, assemble, exhibit, and circulate to museums and colleges, single films or programs of films. And those are definitely methodologies that we adhere to today, 80-something years after the establishment of the department. Well, let's talk about... Uh you know, kind of the film society movement, which was driven to a considerable extent by the MoMA collection going yeah. out to the world. I mean, I I grew up in, in Wichita, Kansas, and 
the Wichita Film Society, which had been founded in the 50s. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I could recognize a moment print by the type in the introductions, uh-huh. uh, right. you know, at a fairly early age in my life. Films had been reissued sometimes when they were big hits. Obviously, things like Birth of a Nation came mm-hmm. back time and time again. But this idea of seeing old movies as something historically valuable, like you say, I mean, kind of didn't exist until the 30s, that, that that there was an idea that, you know, we should we should look at an old film like we should look at an old painting or listen to mm-hmm. a dead composer. Um and commercially, it didn't really take off. I mean, I guess you started to get silence in the late 30s, but it really sounds like MoMA was, was a big driver of this idea, at least in the U.S. Well, I think that's, that's a very fair assumption. It was really important to Iris Barry and then, of course, the other members of the Department of Film to not only be a presence here in New York, but to uh, make available, as she says in her founding statement, Um, to exhibit and circulate to museums and colleges. So to be able to send a program of early silent films to Kansas, uh, say a program that consisted of something like um, a Melies film, Gertie the Dinosaur by Windsor McKay, um, you know, a Max Sennett film, all in a program for students or film lovers to study was really important and nobody else was doing this. And Iris just realized that in order to understand the films that you'd go see in the movie theater, you you needed to have a prior knowledge of film. And um, like, for example, there's the 1916 film, His Bitter Pill, that is a Max Sennett film. And um, she's talking about it being uh, kind of um, an homage to the Western film. And um, here's a film from 1916, and she's talking about Western films, which means she's reading this 1916 film with a 1930-something perspective and knowing that Western films generally have heroes, villains, there's robbery, there are horses, there's a sheriff. So she's taking that and and that's the lens by which she's assessing a film made in 1916 by Max Sennett. So she has this language of um, film criticism, film knowledge, film history. And that's what she's trying to get out there. And um, I think that she's quite successful and never really, she's never really banging you over the head with this knowledge. It's just something that when she's writing in her film notes, um, she's talking about films that you know, some are good and some are not so good, but she's telling you about what's important. Also, for example, in the film, The Jazz Singer, she's not really keen on this movie, but what she says is you must have the jazz singer in the lexicon. Why? Because of its technological advancements. So she's looking at things in this very broad way, uh, much in the way scholars had done traditionally with art history, um, with traditional art history. So, um, you know, having the opportunity to be in Kansas or Indiana or, you know, Queens, New York, and seeing these films was really the great value of what she did for film history. Of course, one of the the issues is you can only study what you have access to. Yes. And that obviously was a big benefit of the, the MoMA collection. Um, but it also kind of shapes what people are going to talk about because it's, it's, you know, deciding and making available what they get to see. For example, the uh, the Film Society in London that she had been involved with yes. w- was pretty leftist and oriented towards Soviet film as as kind of the center of film art at that time. Um, and there's some of that in MoMA, although it's a it's a much broader collection from early on. It seems to me. That, yes, I mean, Iris was really interested in this international perspective. This is also why she was quite involved in the founding of the of FIAF, F-I-A-F, which is the International Federation of Film Archives, because she really believed in this internationalist perspective. In my series, I'm showing a number of films that were made in the late 1920s in Russia, uh, we have Storm Over Asia by Pudovkin. We have, let me see, 
I'm trying to think because I put this together such a long time ago. Sure. I mean, it's it's quite wide ranging. I mean, we're showing uh, a number of German films, and um, you know, there's there's this sense that I really believe that Iris was trying to be as broad in her selections as possible. Um, I do not see a uh, a political agenda here. Um, I think that she really stayed focused on the good works that were out there, whether they be American, German, French, Italian, Russian, Japanese. Um, I don't think those things really mattered to her. It was really about the quality and the innovation of the work. Yeah, I... I, I... I don't feel like I see, you know, Iris Berry's secret communist agent, but there was kind of an assumption with a lot of people that, you know, well, art is Soviet, clearly, and art is secondarily German, clearly. I mean, if you look at like the very first sight and sound best film list from 1952, I mean, Uh it's it's basically flipping the bird to Hollywood. (laughs) You know, there's there's hardly a film on it. Um, But in her case, I mean, she was out getting films from Hollywood at a very early point, which would tend to make you have films from Hollywood. Well, you know, um, one of the things, once the department was incorporated, she went off to Hollywood with John Abbott, who later became her husband, who was the first director of the department. Um, They went out to Hollywood and they were um, invited to go to Pickfair to meet with Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford at their beautiful home and um, also meet the glitterati of Hollywood people like Sam Goldwyn and... um, Charlie Chaplin and Walt Disney and, you know, certainly the the movers and shakers because she went out there to tell them, look, I really would like for you to donate your products to the museum. We're going to view them as art. We're going to um, have screenings for the public. We're going to position them um, in terms of putting together programs for universities and libraries. The one thing we don't want is to compete with you on a commercial level. We have no interest in that. So I think that's why the early studio directors and the early actors felt that they could trust her because she was after the product itself. And the thing they probably felt quite proud about, um, but she wasn't interested in um, getting in on uh, any of the, the profits, the, the commercial aspect of the film. So she early on went to Hollywood and said, I'm going to need your help. And then um, she and John Abbott went off to Europe and they did the same things across Europe. And, um, you know, these are relationships we still have with the film industry and uh, very proud that after all these years that um, we can still, we work symbiotically with the commercial aspect of, of film. Now she managed to get films out of both the Soviets and the Germans during this time. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, no one was at war yet. We were all, you know, we, we had had the war to end all wars. But still, I mean, it's getting up to the period when that starts getting kind of dicey. And it's in, I've always thought it's interesting that Joseph Goebbels felt like he needed to make sure his films were preserved in America. Why? Because he had an idea that in a few years Germany was going to be rubble, basically. You know, you kind of wonder uh, that that he saw... You know, an institution across the world and and sort of opposed to his own society is nevertheless being important to him. Well, I'm looking at it with a different perspective here. Um, My feeling is, and from the research I've done, Iris knew that, you know, I think as, as a lot of people did, that there was a really unsteady political landscape ahead. And she wanted to collect these materials and to save them from potential destruction if, in fact, there was a debilitating war, which is exactly what happened. And um, this goes hand in hand with the founding of the International Federation of Film Archives. And um, a number of these archives in um, Germany and Russia and other countries that were severely affected by World War II said to Iris, please hold on to these for us. 
And um, that's also how we grew our collection. Uh, we were able to preserve and make copies. And then post-war, things went back to the archives. So um, I really think that she was um, a bit of a savior uh, for for this cultural patrimony, this cinematic patrimony that could have been lost um, after what happened in, in so many of these countries during World War II. So I'm not going to really speak on you know what was going on politically, but again, I like to think that she had the uh, this forethought to save the works of art. Well, and then the other interesting thing is even as as America is coming to a time and, and enters into the war and sees you know clearly some of these other countries as enemies, nevertheless. They're having showings of things like Triumph of the Will to American filmmakers to understand what's going on in the propaganda regimes of these other countries. Well, you know, I think that that's really exactly what Iris Barry's intention was, was to um, look at film as a learning tool, something that can be didactic um, in the form of whether or not you think it's purely entertainment or you're going to watch to learn something. She really felt that films were of their time and um, it was really important to read them that way. And that's why when I started my series on October 21st, I started with the film A Fool There Was because in reading her film notes, it's the one she called the most modern, the one that she felt was really glued to the contemporary moment. And um, that was really a signal to me that, um, you know, if I'm going to start something here, I want to start with the one that she felt was, you know, right at the beginning. So we're talking about 1915, a film that was 20 years old by the time um, Iris got around to programming it, but one that she felt was so very modern. And um, and that's why it headed up the entire program for me. Well, let's talk about one filmmaker in particular that she played a large role in, in helping save his work and, and being involved in, in spreading his name out into the, you know, as we were talking, the film society movement into the nascent film programs that mm -hmm. began to appear, everything. And that's D.W. Griffith. Uh -huh. uh, what was the involvement with him? Well, D.W. Griffith was, um, well, let's say her, her involvement actually began with, with Lillian Gish. And that's, that's really where the, the kind of the three individuals, Barry, Gish, and Griffith, um, intersect. It's long been known that Griffith really wasn't so interested early on in um, having his films come to MoMA. And it was very much the urging of um, Lillian Gish with Iris Barry that um, eventually brought the, the films here. I, I really don't want to get into any of the, the politics because I know they're <laughs> sure. quite fraught with respect to certain films. And this is why I chose to show Intolerance because, again, I was looking at um, – I was trying to – incorporate the lens that Iris Barry used to choose those films that were um, of the highest quality and brought about some level of, of innovation in, in, in both, say, cinematography and technology itself. And she writes that uh, she felt that intolerance was ex of extreme importance in the history of cinema because of its it really was the nascent beginning of American cinematography, editing, um, assembly of images, cross-cutting, this kind of interweaving of stories. And so she felt very strongly, again, that um, this particular film by Griffith and his work as a whole constituted that of, of art. And so she and Lillian Gish were responsible for um, bringing those, those Griffith films to the museum. How does MoMA deal with kind of a Griffith backlash? Not again, not against the political stuff, but just you know, well, he's not the only filmmaker of that time. Have, have there has there been sort of in the years since Iris Barry, you know, trying to broaden that perspective? 
Well, certainly we look at quite a wide swath of filmmakers of that time. Um, you know, you have Thomas Ince and you have you have Edison and you have Griffith and you have people like Frank Powell who who did A Fool There Was. I mean, we look at the the um, that decade, the teens, very very broadly, and we also recognize that film is a collaborative art form. So you may have a wonderful director and a skilled writer, but then you also have, um, you know, a whiz behind the camera. So all of these things put together um, inform who we collect, uh, whose works we show. But certainly, um, you know, Griffith is one of the important directors of the early part of American cinema, as are the other directors who, who I previously named. So are there any particular films that you felt were kind of lesser known that you wanted to get into the series to give them? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, um, there were so many and Iris originally in her film notes had about 83 films and, um, I couldn't possibly fit them all in. I didn't have all of that time to show them. So I wanted to show ones and sort of put things together in interesting ways. Um, like for example, on Halloween, I'm, um, I'm showing the skeleton dance by Walt Disney. We, you know, great little animation by Ub Iwerks with, um, dancing skeletons and all that's the, the first of the silly symphonies. And I'm pairing it with the 1920 film, Der Golem, which is a, a, a very traditional film telling a story about um, the golem and uh, brought to life by this rabbi. I like the cheeky kind of combination of the two on Halloween, but I don't think that this version of Der Golem gets seen very often. It's really a very, very interesting story, a very uh, a mythological story, but what makes it fascinating to me is the visage of the golem itself and the um the embodiment of the golem when you actually see the monster he looks like he's made out of clay um he's fascinating to look at so that was one of the the films that i was very keen to show i also love the film cavalcade um, from 1933 by frank lloyd because it's all about change and movement and the passage of time these characters who who are living in a very traditional um, late 1800s home in London. It's the night of, it's, it's New Year's Eve and they're going to switch to 1900. So they need to move forward. Um, men are being sent to war in South Africa. And it's all about um, not considering the past anymore, but accepting the future. So I think that that's a really important film to show. And uh, it's, it's, it's really very delightful. And then um, I'm doing this program called the Iris Talks which is part of this series. And the Iris Talks are um, a series of post-screening discussions with film professionals discussing a broad range of topics related to either the founding of the department or works in the collection. And so my first um, guest for the Iris Talk is my former colleague, Lawrence Cardish, Larry Cardish, who was our senior curator. And this takes place on um, November 12th at 1.30 in the afternoon. And we're going to talk about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and also Iris's interest in German cinema and um, her correlation between um, expressionist paintings in German cinema, I'm sorry, in German art, and then how they cross over into um, German cinema. So that's an exciting thing that we're going to be doing. And we have a second Iris talk later in November with um, Ben Modell, who is someone who plays the piano here for us. And we're going to be talking about um, Arthur Kleiner, who was, he actually had an official title here at MoMA. He was the resident film accompanist um, in the 1930s and through, I think it was almost through the 1960s. Yeah, he worked here for 30 years. And so Ben and I will talk about Arthur Kleiner and we'll look at a a group of um, excerpts of films and we'll hear some of Arthur's um, scores and Ben will play some of Arthur's scores. So it's going to be a nice evening uh, and particularly for our audience to learn more about Arthur Kleiner. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I remember some of these films, uh, some of these MoMA prints being shown, you know, silent in uh, 
<clears throat> in film classes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was never like that at MoMA. There was there was always music accompaniment. That is correct because Iris Barry said that no silent film is ever shown in a silent capacity. So um, we always have some sort of piano accompaniment here at the museum. And I think what it does is it completely enhances the experience and uh, it makes the experience experience more authentic for our audience. I know for me, an authentic screening of a silent film includes hearing the 16 millimeter projector clacking well, and, <laughs> and, and students sneaking out when they get bored. I was part of that film school, too. So, <laughs> yes, yes. When I was an undergrad at NYU, I do remember that. And uh, the silent films were silent. Yeah. Well, so she was at the museum until, uh, what, the late 40s? Um, you know, and I will have to shoot you an email about <laughs> okay. that because I don't have the date off the top of my head. Um, she died, I believe, in 1969. Right. She may have been here until 54 or something, okay. but I'll get you a, a firm date on that. But she ended up moving to France. And I, I was just yes. reading an interesting thing that, I mean, she was she's very much devoted to silence and, and early sound film and mm-hmm. turned down a uh, grant application from Maya Darren because she just didn't see that there was any value in that. Uh, huh. So... Uh, well, we all have our, well, our blind spots, we, I guess. That, Maya Darren is very, very well represented here at MoMA these days. <laughs> okay. So we're... we're, we're, we're um, You're atoned. <laughs> You've atoned. Those important films in the collection. Yeah. Um, tell me, after she left, I mean, how do, is, is there kind of a broad historical arc for how the, the collection evolved from her pioneering work? You know, I think that there has always been... Um, a real adherence to the groundwork that she that she put in place. Um, like I said, the methodologies of how the department is structured and and works is is still what we deal with and how we we work on a daily basis. Eighty years after the founding, you know, you acquisitions are very much um, the realm of curators in the department. People bring to the acquisition process, those films that they feel are important, those films that they feel will stand the test of time. Um, we may um, in, we may collect in depth. Someone may feel very strongly about a particular artist and tries to expand on those um, those holdings that we have. So, of course, everything changes uh, contemporaneously, but we still very much adhere to those original tenets. Yeah, how does that work now? I mean, if if a film is in distribution, you know, if what seems to be a viable company, you know, they're in charge of the materials, but, you know, those things can change overnight. So you're out there acquiring films that are kind of on the commercial market to this day, but nevertheless, you feel like they need to be saved under these sort of circumstances, too? Definitely. I mean, that's exactly how Iris set up the department in that we would work symbiotically with the commercial realm internationally and domestically. And um, whenever we have an acquisition committee meeting, you'll find films on the agenda that are being proposed that are made by independent experimental artists. And then you'll find films made by, you know, Hollywood artists um, or, or studio-made films. So again, we, we have very good relationships across the, the film world. And again, going back to what Iris said, we're not interested in the commerce of this. We're interested in saving the art. And so you'd be surprised how many uh, people in the commercial world really appreciate that and understand and get it and um, would like to see their films here at MoMA.
that's our friend and frequent guest Ben Modell, who accompanies silent films at MoMA, playing for Der Golem on Halloween in the Iris Berry series. A link to the remaining screenings through December will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. And to answer the question raised in the interview, Iris Berry was curator and later director of the Department of Film from 1935 to 1951. Three ways to enhance your Nitrateville radio experience. One, put up a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That helps raise our visibility when people are checking out other podcasts, helping us grow our audience too. Two, subscribe to your favorite podcast app, whatever it is. Three, come join us to chat about vintage cinema at nitrateville.com. It's friendly and well-behaved most of the time, unlike the rest of the big scary internet, and you can share info and chat with folks all around the world. And did I say three? Four! Buy the movies, read the books, go see the shows that we talk about here, to encourage them to keep making them and doing them. Thanks. Il Giornate del Cinema Muto is the silent film festival held every October in Pordenone, Italy. And Lockie Heiss is our annual correspondent on the scene. This year, I started our interview with a question. Here's my observation about Pordenone this year. You know, usually I think of it as like the the mecca of all these ancient, rare, silent films. A place that shows all these things that you've never seen anywhere and you're never going to get the chance to see them unless, you know, David Shepard or Serge Bromberg or somebody benevolently gives them unto us. And... I've seen a lot of the movies that were at Pordenone this year. I mean, obviously there are a lot of things that, you know, were super rare, weird little newsreels or whatever. But, I mean, I've seen their, their features like Skinner's dress suit that I've seen. I saw Sally, Irene, and Mary at Capital Fest recently. I've obviously seen some of the William S. Hearts. I've seen, you know, the Mystery of the Rocks of Cador is on a Kino set. So, you know, what's the deal? I mean, do you think uh, it's just that I've seen an awful lot of movies, or is it just Portnoni kind of in a retrospective mood now? I think uh, you've seen an awful lot of films. Well, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think what what's really going on is that uh, these obscure films are finding their way onto media discs and, and all kinds of ways that people can can watch them from their from their TV or their computer, and I think that's only going to be more. Uh, every year that will be more of the case where somebody will restore and get a film and then instead of the only way to see it would be you know like going to a like a pilgrimage to to Portanoni you know with one click of the of the hand it's been transmitted all over the world by Disney and so these things have have changed uh, so much and I think it really is making festivals have to think very hard about about their programming and and why to program, and um, and so that I mean that's sort of a longish answer to to your your very good observation is that these things they they, they come around their discoveries or their re restorations, and then and then within a month or two they're all over the world. Well, I'll give you another example. Um, Flickr Alley and Serge Bromberg just put out a thing called Fragment of an Empire, a Russian sort yep. of docudrama thing i've actually had the disc for like a month before uh portnone started or something like that i haven't watched it yet but uh but i still kind of think there's a gazillion uh finnish silence that we have yet to see i do think though you hit uh, the point of what i call first second third pass in an archive and and i'm just generalizing to really any archive but let's say let's pick on finland and you um you ask the people who run the archive we want to do a program uh, this year. Show us, you know, your films. And of course, the people in the archive are going to go to their A-list films, right? Sure. Because they're, you know, that's of course, of course they will. We all would. And um, everybody at the, at the festival watches them. They think, boy, these are the fabulous films. Uh, we sure need to know more about. And so they, you know, they go back and say, we want more. And so, well, they're going to go to their B-list, right? And then. So, so it does. It does have a, a, a an issue with um, you're you're always going to see the first, second, third cuts of, of any kind of collection of, of any kind of library, 
and I, I do think as, as festivals go on, there is sort of the question going on is, do you go to your fourth or fifth choice or do you show maybe things you did 10, 20 years ago and the first time you got asked that people all forgotten? I, I think this is a question that that would vex any um, festival director because you, you show something that's new or something that, and I think Jay Weisberg does what any smart person would do that you try to mix it all up. Yeah, and you you, know, you show the kid, you show the kid, and then you show so really obscure films, and you try to keep as many people happy as you can. Right. Well, I think about it too with like the Czech films. I mean, Tonka of the Gallows and Eroticon are both wonderful, but how many more Tonka of the Gallows can really have come out of Czechoslovakia? If there were twenty of them, we would have known it by now. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Tonka is a great film, and. It surprises me it wasn't at Portononi, although there there probably is. It'll end up there at some point, or maybe they think it's already had had the festival circuit. I I uh, I didn't get a chance to to ask Jay about that, um, but I think that 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 movie is probably the best silent film of of discoveries of films that I knew nothing about. I remember being very very impressed with that movie. Yeah. Um, I saw it here in New York. Um, you know, having said all that, the festival has to deal with exactly what you bring up. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, smart minds come together and think, well, what can we do that you can't get on your computer screen or your TV screen? And what you can do is bring a bunch of people together in a large theater and have fabulous music and do it all live. And um, and that's what makes the made the kid you know, work so well. I I have to admit, when I saw that as the uh, opening uh, film, I kind of went, mm, well, I, I know that movie so well. Sure. I've seen it so many times. And so I went a little grudgingly to it, but I sat down, you know, a large appreciative uh, um, crowd, great, um, great orchestra directed by Timothy Brock, and, and they're doing the, the chaplain score, but they're doing it live. And, you know, 10, 15 minutes into the film, I was going, oh, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I, and I was starting thinking, you know, I don't think I've ever seen this film in these, in these perfect conditions before and how, what a difference it makes. And so, um, so, uh, you know, kudos to, to Jay and, and, and the whole idea is you have to pick, you have to sort of, uh, brand your, your, your festival. And, and the reason you go really is, is not to see discoveries anymore. It's to be in an environment where you can enjoy movies and in, in, in a completely optimal setting, you know, fabulous music, the best possible and, and a very appreciative crowd. And, and that's where, that's where this film festival has to head because it's otherwise it's happening as, as you start off our discussion. It's these films are going to get popped off, you know, digitally all over the place the moment they're made or not long after. It'll be just hard to keep them down. The, the pilgrimage idea that, you know, a film got all the money it took to, um, to photochemically uh, do a film and the archive doesn't want to, doesn't want to let that go because they, for them it's, it's, um, what it's a it's valuable property right sure we'll have to come do it and that that concept is just sort of fading away i think um, a couple of the archives are just putting out everything uh their whole the whole archive is getting getting on on uh, public domain on internet which is uh you know really good and really bad at the same time right, right? <laughs> it has great value but but anything can, anything that comes out on that level then the value becomes sort of paradoxically nothing yeah yeah. Right. I mean, when you know it's always there, you never watch it. It's when you have to go to a yeah. festival and, you know, it has one time it's going to be there and you spend all that money to get there. Then you go. I'm part of it. I'm like everybody else. You you, you look at that thing that that you can't get or everybody wants and you want it. And uh, I was in the um, Winter Olympics in um, Salt Lake City now a long time ago and the Olympics were sort of okay, although it was hard to get around, but I quickly realized the whole reason to go there was merchandising, which was, you've got these special caps and this and that. And, and <laughs> it, was, it was, uh, it was all the branding and merchandising. And, and I was, you know, first I was kind of angry and then it just hit me. And this is why you just have to kind of go with it because otherwise you're just standing hours and hours in lines. Right. So, sure. So it's that it's that scarcity, and and I think we just have to um, understand that the scarcity in this situation is going to change from the actual film to the experience. Maybe that that's not such a bad thing. I mean, Bologna is doing well in its kind of branding, and and Portononi is is doing it, you know, in its own way. 
And but then, you know, that's that's the answer to your question is you're going in to experience it, not and that means a lot more than just the film up on the screen. Right. And I mean, that's always a big part of it. I mean, people say, oh, everybody's seen The Thief of Baghdad. Yeah, but they haven't seen it in a really nice 35 millimeter print with an orchestra playing with it and stuff like that. So especially now as as theatrical maybe kind of going away, um, you know, your number of ch- chances to hear that, it's like the difference between a CD and, and going to see an orchestra. So. I agree, although I think it's a hard sell for a, a certain percentage of, of uh, Americans anyway. I think the Europeans have a sort of a, a different um, cultural approach. But, you know, when we become, uh, music gets reduced to sound bites that, that can't last longer than 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to, uh, I mean, I think there's always going to be uh, Turner Classic movies. Um, yeah. Click. Well, well, thank goodness for them because it, it sort of propagates the brand in, in a larger sense, but uh, I, I think this is just something that is going to have to be um, put into the marketplace, like a lot of other things. You know, see this, see this experience, and uh, uh, that's going to be the competitive thing. I think, I think it will be always around, and uh, because the world's a big place, but I, you know, the American market, there's not a lot of places to watch uh, silent films with a live performance, you know, on a regular basis, and. Uh, it's a bit like an opera. We have to sort of work to keep it going, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, let's actually uh, talk about the festival that you went to uh, in this episode. Yes, well, <laughs> I think, though, it's good to sort of a framework because it does it does set the festival up. I mean, I think uh, that is a, that is what you you go there and, you know, like I'm posting photos of um, gelato in front of the theater. And that's that's really just that you go in with the idea that you're just going to relax, have a good time, watch a lot of good movies and 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 um and eat fabulous food and and you know this is this is why you go because you can't do really those things uh you know back in your you can you can watch a thousand channels back in your apartment but you can't do any of the other things right right um but but anyway uh the movies yes so last year i i I would call last year the the festival of of the super production if you've heard that expression you know the long film uh two hours longer and and uh that could make it hard, a long time to sit, but it actually made it much easier to kind of uh, can feel, get a feel for the festival. And this year, I, I, I think it was, I'd call it the, the short film festival year because, and I, I thought about why, you know, I have so many of these short films and, and the answer is obvious. It's because when we talk about discovery, these films that we don't know, you know, the place where that is, the, the, the Terra Incognita is uh, 1910 or so, 1912 to 1920. Right. And a lot of films are made there, and, and boy, not many of those films are available. And uh, and um, because of digital technology, all kinds of restoration, they're getting uh, more available all the time. And and we saw a lot of them um, uh, this uh, this festival, a huge number of films from that era, and. Uh, and almost all of them are under what fifty-five minutes or so. So um, that's a lot of a lot of short films. I I was looking back at, at eight days of, of short programs, and it's sort of your you get a, a, a foggy haze in your head when you try to remember them all. But um, uh, but I, there's a few of them. I mean, the, for example, the Hart films. Um, I'm a huge Hart fan, William S. Hart. And one of the things I was really looking forward to was um, the Hart Festival, or the Hart the Hart program, I should say. And I was going to, I looked over it, you know, to talk about this. And uh, I realized that they had, um, what, they had 12 films, 12 films of, of William S. Hart. <laughs> 12. Yeah. And uh, that's a, a lot for a program. Uh, but then you think about it, and a, a lot of the films were short films or, you know, they add up. There were two Hart films that I liked especially that I want to talk about. And the first was um, The Narrow Trail, 1917. And um, if you, I don't know if you've seen that or not. I believe there's there's two that have that are the narrow something, right? I think I've seen the narrow trail, and not the other one. Well, the narrow trail. Uh, this one is once you tell, hear the story, uh, because it's uh, it's about a bandit who robs the stagecoach. Of course, Hardy is a bandit, robs the stagecoach and falls instantly in love with um, a lady on the coach, uh, an actress Sylvia uh, Bremer um, playing Betty. And um, so he's smitten by her uh, because he thinks this is, she's this lady, not knowing that, that um, she runs a, a bordello in San Francisco. 
so that's not a, a, the usual Hart uh, storyline. And uh, often he doesn't do well with, with the leading ladies. But uh, in this case, a, a good bad man meets a good bad woman. And what you think, oh, they actually have a chance together. Um, because they all, they don't, she knows, she doesn't know, he courts her later in the town. And he's, he, when he uh, robs the stagecoach, he's got a mask over his eyes. So it's a very kind of a fun romance where um, it's almost Shakespearean in that, you know, the, uh, the, everyone's roles are confused until the end. Uh, the other film that I liked a lot um, of, of the 12 was uh, Blue uh, Blazes uh, Rowden. Rowden, yeah. Yeah. And uh, in that film, he plays a rough, tough lumberjack who uh, he's uh, up in the Canadian North and gets into a huge uh, uh, bar fight with a, a gambling wastrel and uh, shoots him dead. But then finds out that he's inherited the uh, the bar at the hotel that goes with it and and the uh, the gambler's um, uh, mother and uh, and son who is going to meet them uh, next week. So. He's got a lot to figure out. Um, he's going to be protecting of the mom whose son he's just uh, killed. So it's a it's a very nice uh, plot twist, um, and and uh, Hart does a great job with it. Uh, so these are, are two films that uh, really add to the the Hart collection. I think a lot of us are familiar with Hell's Hinges, or you know, there's more familiar films. Uh, but um, but 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 they did they made a point to try to do some restorations this year and films that people hadn't seen. They did a restoration of the Aryan, which is a, a long sought after uh, film, and they they have most of it back, although it's missing a few key scenes still, and um, other films. So that you know that that was a very um, happy William S. Hart crowd. That was uh, when we gathered, uh, we put our horses by the uh, <laughs> by the field. So checking the IMDb, I've seen the Darkening Trail, not the Narrow Trail. Ah, okay. <laughs> and, I, and I haven't seen the yeah, Darkening Trail. Uh, that's yet to be. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of Hart. Uh, you know, he's just, uh, there's the three or four that are easy to get. And uh, yeah. uh, he did so many of them, especially in that in that time period. Um, you know, when he when he went out to California, he uh, was the right man at the right place at the right time and, and who knew the right guy. And, uh, you know, Ince was exactly where, where he needed to be when he when he got there and the, the INSA uh, production company and um, there's just all these wonderful uh, two three regular films that uh, that he that he created but uh, Hart was what 49 or 50 when he started his film career so he uh, that's a pretty amazing run his real film career is is basically like seven years I mean then there's tumbleweeds is kind of a coda to it but uh yeah i mean it's it's kind of just like 1915 to about 22 or something um but yeah, uh, yeah that's right Four, 14 to about 22 and and he was playing 20 years younger so yeah. that worked for a while but it, it, it couldn't work forever and eventually uh uh looking at all the films the, the, these were westerns um i one wishes that he might have had a chance to make um more he tried. He does films like The Whistle. Yeah, The Whistle's uh, fantastic, I, and it's a modern day story about yeah. you know involving a factory. He did, and one wishes, you know, in hindsight, I mean, you could say that Hart might have graduated into more of a detective role, um, hmm. which you can play when you're older. Um, but when you look at the time period, you know, that was really on the horizon of uh, the detectives, or the because because he plays sort of a man between two. You know, he he grew up on the in the West as right. a boy, and if you read his autobiography, he saw he was with his dad, and he saw a real gunfight. They came up to a town, and two people, you know, like fell out of a bar, and they shot each other. Um, and uh, his he was right there, and yeah. his dad said, "Don't move." And <laughs> uh, he, he explained to those guys with the you know they know what they're doing with those guns, so they know you're there. They they don't they don't want to shoot you. They want to shoot the other guy. Yeah. And, Which is uh, a little optimistic. Well, well, these, but you understand these are these are people with only six shots, so they're not yeah, spraying bullets. Uh, that's true. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, you know, so Hart had a real experience in the West. I mean, this was during the actual uh, the, the the West of the eight what eighteen um eighteen seventies uh, and eighties. So he was he was very much a part of that. And then he had the second life as an actor and around the um. And, and, and so he was able to really combine that into a, into an unusual product. And, uh, you know, so, you know, he was so, we're, we're, we're better off with this Westerns. Um, 
and uh, we're lucky to have had him. And uh, uh, it was one of the wonderful parts of, of being at Porto Noni. Yeah. Um, there was a, there's there's a huge number of films coming that uh, that came this year that don't usually get a lot of uh, detention. Like uh, Reginald Denny had a bunch of uh, films, um, and uh, you know there uh, the the boxing films that hold up really well. Um, there's the leather pushers. Yes, and that was those a, you know those a are, series that he did exactly a series he did, and he was a boxer, so it's you know it has this authenticity to them. Uh, what happened to Jones is, is it was a it was a very nicely put together farce. Um, there was a, um, a a few you know so this was sort of a Reginald Denny um, uh, mini fest there that uh, that did well with the festival and uh, he's known now as I guess he got into um, small he got into drones when he right was, uh, someone has written a whole biography basically positioning him as the inventor of drones. Well, and probably if, if not the inventor, he certainly was the person who, who popularized uh, right. small planes, radio yeah. control plane, planes, and uh, you know that there was I think let's see, Reginald Denny's granddaughter was uh, was there, you know, talking about about um, her her grand grandfather. If I have the anyway, so that was that was going on, and then we had uh, Beverly of uh, Grassdark um, present, and um, and that's the Mary Davy film, which right. Which which is always is around, but no one ever talks about. Uh, and uh, I, you know, it's a it's a pleasant enough film. Uh, I don't think it's as as good as the, as the films we you know we think we think of her when we when we see them. But uh, but for any Marion Davies fan, it's it's well worth a look. And uh, I don't know if there's a good copy of it. We certainly saw a good one. Um, you know, of that and that. And um, I think the only problem with that film was that it was it was sort of Lubitsch territory you know about uh she goes with her brother to a Ruritarian kind of a country where he's going to be crowned king and then he has um he's hurt in a in a fall she has to uh, assume his his role has to play uh, so there's a lot of cross-dressing going on and uh which is fun and she can you know she looks better in, in a military uniform than uh than, than a lot of people in the world and uh course everybody's sort of attracted to her without understanding that she's not a guy and all the, the normal kind of cross-dressing jokes i think at some point we're waiting for a little lubich uh a twist and or more, more stuff coming and that just isn't going to be happening because if there's the that, that film doesn't you know doesn't have it it's not its purpose is different yeah uh you know but it is it's it's familiar territory from from anybody who sees the lubich movies which would which were coming out soon after this film but it's it's a welcome addition to have you know any time we can watch Marion Davies um, as a as a star vehicle is is always is always a happy event I think for for most of us. Um, there are a lot of other you know, this is I just picked one small little sample. There was a lot of films out there. There was um, a lot of French films, uh, the uh, the shorts and so on. There was a Max Linder film, a Le Petit Cafe, which I think has been around for a long time, but. That people keep grabbing little parts of it and adding to it, and it's almost <laughs> complete. Uh, and it's good. I mean, you, 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 Max Linder becomes the, the the chaplain that we almost, you know, the. I mean, when you see him, you really see uh, the similar kind of um, uh, acting business that Chaplin did. And I know they were, you know, they admired each other, and no wonder, um, because they they had such similar routines. And it's so it's such a pleasure to see Max in in, in a longer film. Uh, you know, do his stuff, and so that was a that was a pleasure. And then you you saw Sally, Irene, and Mary. What did, what did you think of that film? You know, it's it's like a lot of those twenties uh, melodramas. I guess is kind of the archetype of the you know the three girls living together, three showgirls who meet the rich guys. Uh, you know, all the way to like How to Marry a Millionaire and things like that. Great set design. You know, the kind of melodrama that I'm only so interested in. But, I, you know, it was fun. I had a good time. I, I was shocked at the year it was made because it felt very pre-code to me. Yeah. I do think that Silent, silent Era does uh, enter it. You, you know, when you see a film like Chicago, how can you not call that a pre-code? Right. Because uh, <laughs> um, it, it just is. But but this movie was made in 25, and it really sets up. I mean, this just feels like uh, a film that was shot in thirty thirty one or something. So it's all there, ready to go. I mean, because uh, you have that, you just feel like uh, like the gold diggers of whatever are ready to just to pop in any day, any time, and and start adding to the scene. 
Yeah. But I mean, on the other hand, it, it wasn't, it didn't try to be anything. Uh, what would your interests go to? What kind of genre do you like more? Um, as opposed to Sally, Irene, and Mary. Yeah, I mean that kind of yeah, yeah. Mel- melodrama showgirl thing is is less, or you know, I might have liked it better with snappy dialogue uh, more. But you know, I I suppose uh, adventure and sort of I don't know, maybe grimmer drama, more more serious and intense drama, just because silent film does that so well. I think. Well, you would have that last year. They sure had that in spades. I mean, the chess players was. was yeah, you know what a fabulous film that is. For has all those things you mentioned. Um, this year there was a, a, a couple, several programs, Nasty Women, and um, a lot of really great comedians um, um, from the, particularly the French, but I think it was a kind of scattered around. There was one a character in particular called Leotine, uh, who is a there, no. If you're looking for discoveries, there's something that oh, that a lot of people don't know about, including me. But she was, uh, there's an actress, we don't know her name. Right. At least that's what I, I read. And then, you know, she played in a series of, it was it 21 episodes from 1910 to 1912. And she would typically play the same character who would start off as kind of a sassy um, young girl or teenager who would basically, by the end of the of the short film, would have everything around it completely destroyed, everything around <laughs> uh, which was fun. You knew it was going to happen. It had a very similar feel to like a Warner Brothers cartoon <laughs> one of the you know, the more anarchical ones where you yeah. just and what makes it fun is you know it's going to happen but you don't know how and leotine just starts doing stuff and 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 with with like clockwork precision things just start happening and just getting worse and worse until the, so something is just you know, the uh, the cats and jammer kids did you guys right yeah that the, <laughs> yeah it's a very similar kind of idea, uh, but it, you know, it, it, it's of course it's just fun to watch, and it's short enough that you don't get bored by the idea. So a lot of films like that. That that film was was uh, is you know catches your eye most because it's uh, you can talk about it most easily. There are a lot of other very similar kind of um, uh, there's this very kind of surreal and anarchic humor that was really uh, present in films uh, of that era. So. If you get in the right, you know, setting and format like Portanoni, you can really enjoy them. Yeah, so that was a whole European slapstick series that I know Steve Massa was part of. Did you find any? I mean, other than Leotine, did you find any comedians that you thought, uh, "Wow, we should all know this guy," like we know Chaplin or we know Laurel and Hardy? Yeah, uh, that's where you get into the haze because you're, you're, if you've seen, um, if you're seeing about three different programs. And, uh, <laughs> You see a lot of good acting and stuff, but um, I actually at, at my second program I said I've got to start writing this down because otherwise you just can't, you can't keep right. track of, of the people that go from one to the other. Um, I believe there was a, a short with um, uh, let's see if I pronounce her name right. At least you know, is it Guy, the friend, the woman that was the French director from right. that era. Yeah, and and uh, she did this wonderful um, film about. A, a woman's point of view about being pregnant and having you know hormones going through her body and <laughs> talk about a POV uh, and uh, it was you know that, that was just hilarious because you're just seeing stuff uh, you're, you know we have this kind of um, uh, male POV like like 99 percent of the time and you're just it, it's, it's just there but then when you see someone who's got a uh, someone very different and very intentional you know we're we're going to do this and you're just there it is and um, you know, I just wish there was more stuff out there like that because it's it's such a refreshing change. Right. Uh, yeah, she's, uh, I think if I remember, um, the end of the film uh, among the, my, the murky memory, I think that at the end she's, she's pregnant, of course, but she gets tired of the pregnancy show. She goes to a cabbage patch and then just walks off oh. with the kid, <laughs> which is a very, a very uh, a simple and pleasant resolution to, uh, to what's going on. And, uh, uh, you know, that was, that was just a great sidekick. So there was there was a lot of uh, short films like that, and uh, you know, as you're asking the the, the opening um, question was about all these films are out and around. Well, yes, but you know, they're not curated. You don't have the the um, the people, the context, sort of. You know, you have. Um, so these are this is what uh, Portnoy can do that that you can't do. Uh, you know, in your own in your own place, your own TV, and um, you know, it's one more reason to go to the festival. Yeah. All right. So I just did a search on Alice Guy and the 
films they seem to have shown of hers, Madame a des envies, uh, and the other one is La Femme Collante, A Sticky Woman. Which one do you think it was? <laughs> you have any idea? Well, I if if you can if I can stall on that for a minute, I can I can. I think it was a Sticky Woman, but uh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's hard now. That would that'd be a little harder to find. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's a confusing question for for listeners. You know, do you go out looking for this stuff on on uh, on DVD or not, or is it worth it? And I I don't have an answer for that. I I, I because I live in New York City, I I have the the ability to watch a lot of films on on screen. So I I try to stay away from uh, the DVD just because it's I, I I can. But I know if you don't if you don't live in a big city, you just don't have that option. You just right. work with what you got. So is there any one thing that you look back and think, wow, that was really the find of this festival. I'm glad I saw that. Well, uh, let's see. Discoveries. Uh, uh, the surprise of the festival, yes. I, I Now that I've, I've thought about that a second, one of the things they did that you're not going to find anywhere else is they had a lot of commercials uh, this year hmm. from different uh, countries. And uh, they had one of the most unusual commercials you'll ever see. It was... Um, uh, it was using Diogenes as a character. Uh, instead of searching for an honest man, Diogenes is looking for, he's looking for the right kind of, let's see, is it soap or coffee or something? He, <laughs> okay. he, he goes around 2,000 years, and it's, it's about a 25-minute film made, uh, I think it's Norwegian, and you see all these different historical characters, and you don't know what's, where it's like a, it's a it's a a shaggy dog story. It's a shaggy dog commercial because you don't know where it's going to go. And in the in the very end, oh butter, that's what it is. <laughs> it's a it's a Norwegian uh, special butter. And at the end of of, of this uh, like two thousand and one space uh, odyssey shaggy dog story of Diogenes going all over the world, he ends up in a in a Norwegian bakery and then. A very a pretty Norwegian young woman, you know, butters his bread, and he looks at the camera and says, "I, you know, I Diogenes have found truth." <laughs> and, and it's just so, it's just so awfully strange that it, of course, works wonderfully. So, so there you go. There's, there's the surprise of the festival was a, it was a, a, a commercial using Diogenes as a, as someone who's shilling butter. All right, well, I found it here. It's Rex Havad Diogenes Sok de Agafant, or Rex, what Diogenes sought and found. So exactly. look for that That's one, folks. Look watch, for that one, exactly. Watch for that one on home and video. Buy, and buy the, and what's the name of that butter? Rex, apparently. Rex, yeah, yes, Rex King. So go for Go for this butter. It's, it's, it's so good that even Diogenes liked it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you going back next year? Yeah. No, I, you know, you get to what you want to see your friends and, 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 uh, and you just want to be able to sit in a, in a cafe and just um, eat really great food and um, um, just kind of relax and, and get away from the world for a week. You know what? It's an hour north of Venice. It's a small town. Uh, and I think that actually makes it good because you don't have, it's not tourist trap there. The foods are just, the restaurants are for the locals. And so the pizza's fabulous. Everybody's happy to be there. And, uh, and I'll be happy to be there next year. Thanks to my guests, Lockie Heiss and Ann Mora. And special thanks to Ben Modell, who suggested the segment about the Iris Berry series and graciously allowed me to use his music straight from a live performance at MoMA. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at your favorite podcast site. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks.